I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, not to um, 1 Corinthians, where we've been, uh, but rather to the book of 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 22, and uh, page 329 in your pew Bible, if that helps. You know that this is Reformation Sunday, and uh, it has been our practice in the past from time to time to take up a direction in the sermon fitting to the season. And now while a, a good portion of our culture is uh, consumed right now in the celebration of Halloween, we remember the 31st of October as the day that the world was shaken to its very axis by this uh, great movement that we now call the Reformation. October 31 is the day we commemorate the great movement of the Holy Spirit, the greatest, uh, some say, since Pentecost. Uh, when um, in 1517, or marked by the day anyway, in 1517, 499 years ago, that Martin Luther posted his 95 theses on the castle church door of Wittenberg, unwittingly sending reverberations throughout the entire world with that hammer blow. We're happy today to be heirs of that Reformation, and so it's good and right that we should pause this morning and consider our privilege, but also our responsibility. We turn this morning to read of another Reformation that took place in the church some 630 years before the birth of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help once more. The same Holy Spirit who who uh, brooded over the deep at the beginning, who, uh, who led your people uh, to salvation of old, who broke out at Pentecost and sent the gospel to the four corners of the world, who restored that gospel to a world who had lost that gospel by and large, not completely, but certainly in the main 500 years ago, and now who is present right here with us as we open this word that he inspired for its writing, and now we pray will illumine in its reading. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Kings chapter 22, verse 1, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah. Uh, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkath. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. In the eighteenth year of King Josiah, the king set Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, son of Meshullam, the secretary, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. And let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord, repairing the house, that is, to the carpenters and to the builders and to the masons, and let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked from them for the money that is delivered into their hand, for they deal honestly. So if we may pause there a moment and notice there's already work going on, on the house of the Lord, on the temple, under the reign of Josiah, and we would expect as much because we find and we've read that he was a king righteous and faithful. 
love of the Lord's house is always found in the heart of the righteous. In fact, Jesus said that love for God's house actually consumed him. Remember when he also zealously instituted some reforms of his own from the handle and of a whip. Well, this righteous believer, Josiah, was about to find even more zeal for Lord's house upon the discovery of this. Verse 8, And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house, and I've delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight in the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. I don't know whether, we don't know whether this was the only copy of the law of God uh, in Judah at this time. Josiah himself was obviously trained in righteousness, probably by his mother, and uh, would have heard that law somewhere. Uh, she would have learned it somewhere to pass it along to him. Perhaps this was the temple copy that had long fallen into disuse. At any rate, its discovery rates grazes, raises great interest, especially in the king. Verse 11, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Hikam the son of Shaphan and Achbor the son of Micaiah and Shaphan the secretary and Isaiah the king's servant saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book, to do according to all that is written concerning us. Now at this point, Huldah, the priest, uh, the prophetess rather, is consulted and she confirms that God is indeed angered by the people's disobedience and especially by their false worship. Josiah acts, of course, and swiftly we pick up in the next chapter, chapter 23, verse 1. Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both great, uh, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord, and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. Now from verses 4 through 20, we have the history of Josiah's complete purging from Judah, all manner of idolatry with a righteous violence, the scope of which had not been seen before, defiling, breaking down, trampling, burning high places, idols and altars, executing idolatrous, idolatrous priests 
and burning them on their own altars. Josiah institutes thoroughgoing reform throughout the church and throughout the land. But notice what he does next. We pick up at verse 21. And the king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in the book of the covenant. For no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel, or during all the days of the kings of Israel, or of the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Before him there was no king like him, who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his might, according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. You've probably noticed that bumper sticker that says on it, Semper Fi. Well, Mr. Petoniak can tell you what Semper Fi means. It's an abbreviation of the motto of the United States Marines, Semper Fidelis, which translated reads, Always Faithful. Well, I've preached to you before about some of the Latin phrases that rose out of the Reformation of the church, which still serve as the cries of the faithful who continue in this tradition. Sola fide, faith alone. Sola gratia. Grace alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone, to name but a few. But there's another phrase. I'm not sure that it's as old. In fact, we're not really sure of the exact origin of this phrase, but just as important. Ecclesia semper reformata semper reformanda. The church always reformed and always reforming. We've written it right into the bylaws of this very church, of this congregation, that we are committed to being a church always reformed and always reforming. But what do we mean by that? And how committed are we, especially to that second part, that always reforming part? The fact is, we're much more comfortable, aren't we, in being reformed? That we can, that we can handle, perhaps, but more comfortable with that than the whole always reforming part. The former is fixed. You see, the latter is in flux. Where is always reforming going to lead us as a congregation? What's always reforming going to require of us as a people? We are, as churches go, theologically conservative. Many of you are politically conservative, but I suspect that most of us are constitutionally conservative, by which I mean we do not like change. And we don't like it one bit. It's in our very constitution, our personality, to resist change. 
We don't like it. It scares us. It challenges us. It, it bothers us. Sometimes it makes us uncomfortable. Sometimes it corrects us in ways that uh, we don't really care to be corrected. We say on paper, don't we, right in our church bylaws, that we are always, we must always be reforming. But with our hearts and our lips, we might more likely be heard saying, we've, uh, we've always done it this way, or we've never done it that way. We're pleased, we're proud, likely to a fault, to call and consider ourselves always reformed. But uh, always reforming? Well, maybe not so much. More of a slogan than a reality sometimes. Now, of course, some churches have greatly abused this notion of always reforming and have used it for more diabolical purposes. Under the banner of always reforming, some have actually deformed the church leading her down paths that are not more faithful, but rather away from the narrow path on which our spiritual fathers and mothers have led her in better days. Take this example from relatively recent history of the denomination in which I was born and raised, the Reformed Church in America. In the same year that I graduated from our Covenant Seminary, a relative of mine named Norm Cansfield became the president of New Brunswick Seminary in New Jersey. Now, this is the seminary that my denomination then, the RCA, told me to attend. And it was by men of the same RCA classes, just another word for presbytery, the equivalent of our presbytery, I say by men of that same classes in which Dr. Cansfield was first licensed to preach, that I was first licensed to preach. In fact, Norm Cansfield and I were raised in the very same community on the south side of Chicago, only a generation apart. But Dr. Cansfield rocked even the RCA when he wed his homosexual daughter to her lesbian partner. The shock waves reverberated through the nomination and the church, and he was soon thereafter ousted from that post as president of New Brunswick. But it will not surprise you to hear that there were immediately supporters coming uh, out to uh, immediately rally around him. A website was developed where buttons were sold that could be uh, brandished at church saying, I support Norm on them. And their other slogan on every page of their website was, you'll never guess, well, maybe you will, Semper Reformata said Semper Reformanda. The church reformed, but always reforming. Obviously, we're going to have to define our terms, aren't we? As to what reformation means, what it means to be always reforming. So this concept has its dangers, doesn't it? But, but then so does being the church, and so does being a Christian in general. It's full of dangers on every hand. And refusing to reform, digging in our heels and refusing ever to change in any way, that's no solution either. And in fact, it's one of the great dangers of reformed churches and reformed Christians. 
taking our stand right where we are today or where we were in 1648 or where we were in 1706, refusing to reevaluate, to reconsider, to reexamine our practices in our worship, in our lives, or our beliefs, our doctrines, and how we express those. That's no faithful Christianity. Imagine Josiah, the righteous king, coming into his power and influence, seeing the state of the church in his day and and saying, well, you know, it's always been this way or we've always done it this way or we've never done it that way. You know, the ministers of the church said it and the elders said it in his day, at least the disobedient and idolatrous ones. We've always done it this way. Who are you to change things? But by God's grace, reformation came. The church of Josiah's day was indeed reformanda. But how to keep reformation from becoming deformation? If we must change, what shall keep us from changing for the worse and not for the better? Well, this safeguard was built right into the reformation, just as it was in the reformation under Josiah. In fact, it It's captured in another one of those Latin phrases from the Reformers, another sola. It is sola scriptura, scripture alone. That's the bedrock on which all true reformation is built and the channel that guides true reformation along the way. Scripture. It certainly was in Josiah's day. When once the book of the law was read, it was in accord with that book that Reformation broke out in Judah. It was the faithful application of the law of God, and not just part of it, but all of it. That was the engine that drove Josiah's chariots to disseminate the truth, that dispelled the shadows of falsehood and corruption in the church. The same was true of the Reformation that spread like wildfire across the world, across Europe, and then across the world five centuries ago. It was the power of God's word applied to the church, her doctrine, her worship, her life. God's word that would not return, as Isaiah says, would not return to him void, but accomplish all that for which he had sent it. And that was no accident. In fact, historians have often explained the Protestant Reformation by describing its material cause and its formal cause. Its material cause was the dispute over the doctrine of justification by faith alone, sola fide. Its formal cause was the dispute over biblical authority, sola scriptura. The big question behind all of the other questions, you see, of the Reformation was this. Who shall rule? Who shall carry the ultimate authority? For the church in Luther's day, the answer was, and still is today, at least there's an attempt in this direction to say there are two dual authorities. Scripture and church tradition. 
But of course, and you know this from experience, inevitably and always one authority will take precedence, right? And indeed, it does. In Luther's boyhood days, the church, the church was the authority to interpret the Bible. And only by the authority and the tradition of the church was doctrine to be approved and believed. No person was to interpret the Bible or even read the Bible any other way than that might be contrary to the church's tradition and that upon pain of death. Which is, of course, exactly why Martin Luther did that and why his life was forfeit for it, save for the preservation of his life by God. That's why Luther's penned, pained, rather, his, his pained words before the church authorities at Worms at his trial were these. Unless I am convinced by sacred scripture, I will not recant. What was true for him, intensely true for him personally, was even more true for the church, wrote Luther about the relationship between the church and the Bible. The church does not make the word, but it is made by the word. Similarly, Calvin said that when the church receives the world and gives it her stamp of authority, she does not make that authentic, which was otherwise doubtful or controverted, but acknowledging it as the truth of God, she, as in duty bound, shows her reverence by unhesitating assent. That is by obedience to everything the Word of God says. For reformers, there were not two authorities. There, were, there was one scripture alone. Now for us, the inheritors of the heirs of the Reformation, the standard must be the same. Now, tradition is good. I'm not saying tradition is bad. Tradition is wonderful. We love our traditions, don't we? And time-tested as they are, our traditions should be respected. The burden of proof should always lie on the side of those who would undo a change in our tradition. Let's just say it. Tradition is a good guide. But it is a very, very poor master. In fact, holding tradi tradition as we do, we must take and make this tradition, this particular tradition, our most important tradition, that is the tradition that says that all traditions must be examined and re-examined against the Scripture. It's not enough to say we're Reformed or that we stand in the Reformed tradition. We must also be reforming. And the sole authority for directing our continuing reformation must be Scripture and Scripture alone. In other words, Ecclesia Reformata, Semper Reformanda, Secundum Verbum Dei. Reformed and reforming according to the Word of God. And we could go on this morning and 
Consider the Reformation on several different fronts in several areas, just as Reformation came in, in all fronts in Josiah, King Josiah's day, and in the days of Calvin and Luther and Utzer and Melanchthon and the rest, we could speak of Reformation and personal ethics. We could speak of social life. We, we could consider the Reformation of doctrines and beliefs, Reformation of theology, that is. And every one of those areas is of great importance, indeed. But, and, and isn't this remarkable, where you find Reformation, where Reformation comes to the church, that Reformation always shows itself, reveals itself, applies itself in the sanctuary, in worship. Worship is chosen as the object of Reformation by Josiah, not only because it had be become corrupt, just as it had in Luther and Calvin's day, but because it is so much, worship is so much an indicator of the spiritual condition of God's people. And because it is the engine of everything holy and good in the life of God's people. Fix that. Fix worship. And you fix much. Worship and life, they go together. And so does the reformation of worship and life. But we can get even more specific than that. There's something within worship that was of, of immediate concern to Josiah, just as it was to the reformers in the 16th and 17th centuries. It is the right use of the sacraments. Did you notice that? Of, of all the things Josiah might have chosen to highlight, the proper order of worship, the faithful preaching of God's word by her ministers, what he and Scripture draw attention to here is the Passover, one of the sacraments of the church in that epoch. The Reformers did the same. They set their eyes on the proper use of the sacraments. In Josiah's day, it was the Neglect of the sacraments that was at issue. They had not celebrated the Passover, or at least had not celebrated it in an obedient way. We read in verse 22, since the days of the judges who judged Israel. The sacraments were of, of central concern to the Reformers as well, 500 years ago, for two reasons. In one sense, the situation was similar to Josiah's in that communion or Eucharist, or the Lord's Supper, whatever you want to call it, the counterpart of the Passover since Christ's incarnation was withheld from the people and was enjoyed mainly, if not solely, by the ministers, while the people watched from the pew. And at the same time, it was taught by the church that the sacraments possessed uh, within themselves the power to make a person right with God. It was against these abuses that the Reformers railed in their preaching and in their writing. But here's the terrible irony of that. In reaction to the abuse of the sacraments, the Reformed Church, since the Reformation, has widely erred by neglecting the sacraments and virtually emptying them of their meaning and power at all. 
Not, of course, that the Reformers themselves intended such a thing. Not at all. They did not disparage the sacraments, at least not those Reformers who were faithful to all of what Scripture has to say, but the net effect of their reaction against Rome's abuses became over the years, and especially among the children, the following generations of the Reformation, neglect of the sacraments. Especially in American evangelicalism, we have a spiritual culture in which the sacraments are no longer very important. In fact, in a good number of Modern churches being planted on the seeker-sensitive model, the sacraments have disappeared from the people's consciences, their consciousness, and their worship. But what is particularly distressing is that nobody seems to miss them. Now, that cannot be right. Not when God has given us the sacraments, and not when Reformation always brings with it a renewed faithfulness in the sacramental area of the church's life. Take the Lord's Supper. I grew up in the Reformed tradition, as did many of you, but we rarely observed the Lord's Supper. And I think, quite frankly, we could have done away with it completely and not really have missed it. So how wonderful it is to me, then. And I know it is to you because many of you have told me as much that, that we've returned as a congregation to this biblical and apostolic practice of regularly and often coming to the Lord's table week after week. And we give ourselves no credit for this, no pats on our own backs, of course. All glory goes to God for this, nor do we think more highly of ourselves, not for one moment. On the contrary, we know better than ever, precisely because we are so often at this table, that even Reformation itself is all of God's grace. And nobody needs that grace. Nobody consumes greater volumes of that grace we know than we ourselves even at this very table every week. And we're not the only ones, of course. We're part of a reformation that I'm happy to inform you today is making its way through our even our denomination today in this matter of frequent communion. It is spreading further, and more and more churches are doing what we did quite some time ago. I'm glad to report to you for instance, that uh, it dismayed us several years ago when we heard from one of the churches in our presbytery in southern Illinois that they had not observed the Lord's Supper for two years. I find some encouragement in the fact that at least our presbytery was dismayed and made fast work of remedying that situation. In many ways, our church is semper reformanda, reforming. But here's the thing. Always reforming is an ongoing process. The spotlight of God's Word continues to expose to us first this area of our church's life and worship, and then that area of our church's life and worship with its searching 
and correcting Ray. And sometimes it's painful. Let's just admit it. Sometimes it's painful to be reformed by God's Word. And it's rarely comfortable. But whatever else it requires of us, dear flock, let us be a congregation not only willing, but happy and desirous to be both reformed and always reforming according to the Word of God. Amen.